Father, we come again, once uh, again, to your word, trusting that here you are, you are speaking. You are giving us the gift of communication with you. And we'll admit that so often as, as we come to your word, we forget that present reality, that your spirit is alive and at work through these words. And sometimes we come to these words with confusion, not understanding what they say and what the implications of them are for our lives. Sometimes we come to your word with arrogance, with pride, and unwillingness to apply and accept what we do understand. In other words, we come to your word this morning needy, in desperate need of your help, in desperate need of the work of your spirit to humble us, to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to not only understand your voice, but to receive it and to receive its power to transform us. Would you help us? Would you do that this morning? We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's what I left out last week. For those of you who were here with us, maybe you remember in chapter 2, you remember those first two powerful words that begin Ephesians chapter 2. And you. Words that write us into an incredibly powerful story of reversal. A story of transformation, a story of resurrection, and you puts us in that story, only that isn't how this chapter begins. Ephesians chapter 2 doesn't begin, and you, it begins, and y'all, or and yins, if you're from western Pennsylvania. <laughs> you see, this story is completely told in the second person plural. It is a narrative that involves individuals, but it is ultimately about a community. A community called the church. It is not and you, it is and y'all. And so verse 11 continues the movie that we started last week, but now the camera lens widens. And helps us to see the yallness of God's rescue mission. That His work is about not just persons, but a people, a community, the church. But here's the problem with that. Of all the institutions in this world that are mistrusted and reviled... The church has to be near the top of that list. Maybe Congress has us beat. Go Congress. (laughs) And that mistrust, that suspicion, it comes not only from public scandal, but it also comes from personal pain. Many of you sitting in this room this morning have been hurt, have been harmed. By the community of the church. You have been hurt. You have been harmed by leaders of the church. So that suspicion doesn't just come from things that happen in the news. It comes from personal 
experience. And maybe you have at times thought, Jesus, I like him, the church, not so much. I've thought that. Grew up as a pastor's son. I have spent the vast majority of my working life in pastoral ministry. I have seen the dark underbelly. And it ain't pretty. The church is full of imperfections and sometimes straight out ugliness. So why are we still here? Why are we here this morning? Why are we still doing this? Why am I still doing this? Why does the church, with all of our suspicion, with all of its imperfections, why does the church still matter? Well, that's the question I want to ask this morning. I want to bring that question to this text. I want to bring that question to this story about the yaldness of God's rescue mission. Why does the church still matter? Let's look here and find two reasons. The church matters because of who we are and because of how we are. First of all, the church matters because of who we are, because of our identity. There's an old classic segment of Sesame Street where Grover demonstrates the difference between near and far. He runs back away from the camera lens and he says, far. I can't do Grover's voice. And then he runs way up to the lens and he says, near. And he goes, far. And then he goes, near. It's a lot of like what? That's much of what Paul is doing here in this text. Far and near. Far. He speaks here, not of the problem of death like we saw last week, but the problem of distance. And he speaks of two tragic distances. First of all, the distance between Jew and Gentile. You Gentiles, you are far off. You are far away from all of the benefits that were promised to the Jewish people. You are far off. You are separated. You are alienated from those benefits. And then secondly, he speaks of a distance, not just between Jew and Gentile, but between Jew and Gentile and God. Both groups need to be reconciled to God. They are far off. They are alienated. And these distances, while certainly they are caused by sin... The emphasis in this passage is the role of the Old Testament law to expose and intensify this alienation between people and between people and God. And in particular, behind this text are the instructions about circumcision and about the structure of the tabernacle and the temple. In those instructions, God is visualizing the problem of distance. The problem of distance between Jew and Gentile. And the problem of distance between all humanity and God. But Paul doesn't bring all of this up to make us feel bad. He brings all of this up to look at us and say, Church, that's not who you are. Alienation. Distance, 
far church. That's not your identity. He backs way up and says far so that we can feel the force of him running to the lens and saying, you are the community of the near ones. You have been brought near to each other. You have been brought near to God. Distance isn't your identity. Closeness is. And that closeness is so powerful that he can describe it as a fellow citizenship. You need to understand that for the original readers of this letter, Roman citizenship would have been something of incredible value and privilege. But Paul says to them and to us, you have something more valuable. You have something of greater privilege. You have a shared citizenship in the people of God. But even that isn't enough. Citizenship isn't powerful enough to capture this nearness. Paul has to go on and talk about family. He says, you are the household of God. Which means not only are we God's children, but that we as a community are God's home. We are where He lives. We are where His unique, the unique dwelling place of His Spirit is located for now on this earth. That's why church still matters. It matters because of this incredible identity of nearness to each other and nearness to God. So near that God can say about us that we are His temple. The location of His presence. That is us gathered here. Gathered As an expression of his people. As his church. And church still matters because of the possibility of that. Because of the possibility that offers not only to us but to our world. Can you imagine? Think about the compelling alternative. We can offer to our deeply divided society. To our deeply divided world. This summer at the Olympics. A group of athletes will compete under the flag. Not of a nation. But of the Olympics. Under the five rings of the Olympic logo. Do you know why that is? It's because there were so many athletes who are refugees. The refugee problem has become so acute. There are enough homeless athletes to make a whole team gathered under the Olympic flag. Well, as the church of Jesus Christ, we have a better flag. We have a better flag for refugees of all kinds. We have a better flag for homeless of all kinds. 
Because over us flies a banner that says this is a community united across all sorts of difference as the expression, the visible expression of God's own living presence. The church stands as a possibility not just of coexistence like the bumper stickers you see around town, The church stands as the possibility of communion. Profound communion with God and with others. The church stands in the possibility not just of tolerance, but of sacrificial love. Not just the cessation of violence, but the embrace of intimacy. That is the possibility of this identity. That's the potential of this vision that Paul speaks over us. And would you please notice, you can't live that by yourself, with your Bible, in your quiet time. We can only live that with flesh and blood Messed up people like us. You can only live out this identity in community. And that's hard. That is difficult. And that is painful. But it it is also inescapably biblical. If you are in Jesus... You must participate in his church. That is a clear expectation and command of the Bible. It is hard. It is difficult. It is sometimes painful. But it is inescapably biblical. But it is also an incredible opportunity. The incredible opportunity to demonstrate to this world what God makes of His people. What God wants for His people. Listen, this is not an advertisement for Centerpoint. There are many good and faithful churches here in Tallahassee. If you don't want to make this your home, that's okay. There are many other potential homes in our town. But what this does say is that that you are a Christian. You must find a community that believes this, that is attempting to live this, and you need to give yourself, you need to commit yourself to the life of that community. As I've already said a couple times, That's complicated, that's painful, and that is difficult. And the reason it is complicated, painful, and difficult is because our identity, who we are, it is in process. Yes, we are the temple of God, but we are being built into the temple of God, right? It's what he says. We're a little bit like this bridge right outside our windows, which looks a little bit fancier today. Do you see the new? This bridge in a couple of months will be beautiful. But right now, it's kind of a mess. Because it's being built. That's us. That's Centerpoint. 
That is every single local expression of God's church. We will be beautiful, but right now we're kind of a mess. There are no golden ages for the church. Some people want to go back. They want to go back to the early church. But please go go read Acts. I mean, it's like two seconds. People are lying. They're dropping dead. They're fighting. Go back to... Some of you... Calvin's Geneva. Calvin's Geneva, a mess. Right? There are no golden ages because, yes, we are the temple of God, but we are being built. Our identity is in process. And what we need to do is we need to ask how that process happens. How are we being built as the dwelling place of God's own spirit? And as we answer that question, we'll see a second reason why the church still matters. Not only who we are, but how we are. If we're being built into a structure, it's not surprising then that we find construction language here in this text. Paul talks about that problem of distance as walls. Walls of hostility. Separating Jew and Gentile, separating humanity and God. And he says those walls must be torn down in order for this new temple to be built. And who does the demolition work? Who does the renovation work for this new temple? Well, Jesus, who is our peace. Jesus who is our peace, tears down the old walls of hostility and builds up this new temple of God. Think about it. Think about the New Testament Gospels. New Testament Gospels, they tell us that Jesus takes two major actions at the temple in Jerusalem. First, he storms in, he kicks over tables, and he plays tags with the merchants with a whip and chases them out. And what does he say as he does that? He says, this house, this is my father's house, and it is supposed to be a house of prayer for Jewish people. No. He says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. He's tearing down the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. Now that action, it gets him in trouble. (laughs) And it leads in part to the conspiracy for his death. And as he is hanging on the cross, as he's bleeding out, as he's exhaling his final breath, what happens at the temple? Well, the curtain, the curtain that separates everyone except one priest once a year from the most holy place, the closest you could get to God on earth, that curtain, that wall is torn from top to bottom. Jesus tears down the wall of hostility in the body of his flesh. He suffered and he died to destroy the distances between us and between us and God. So that he could build us up as the new temple. As God's own dwelling place. In ancient literature, there is a pattern. There's a pattern for describing and proving why someone should be honored as a king. 
And that pattern is this. The, the person, the potential sovereign, goes out and defeats an enemy. It's the first step. Returns home and has a coronation ceremony. Is enthroned. And then, third, starts a building project. Builds a temple to a god. Now think about the book of Ephesians up to this point. Paul has proclaimed to us, Jesus is the universal sovereign. He rules over all things and will bring all things together under God's rule. How is that proven? How do we know that? Well, he's defeated an enemy. He died, but he rose. He defeated death, Satan, and hell. But not only did he die and rise, but he ascended. He was, there was a coronation. He was enthroned in heaven. And by the end of chapter 2, what is he doing now? He's building a temple. And that temple is us. We are the demonstration of what Christ has done. We are His effect. That's why the church still matters. Because we live as the echo of that great shout of victory. It rang out as Jesus rose from the tomb and ascended into heaven. You see, he is, he is a stone being dropped into a pond. And we are the ripple. We are the ripple effect. Christ's death and resurrection and ascension. That's why the church matters. And you can't be the ripple effect by yourself, with your Bible, in your quiet time. You must give your life to the life of a community in order to participate in this construction project that Jesus is in the middle of. And that says something not only to you as an individual and the importance of you giving your life to a community. It also says something to us as a community. It says something to Centerpoint. And so I don't want to talk to Centerpoint for just a moment. Because what this says to us is that we must struggle and fight very hard to maintain our focus. Because... What makes us into a temple of the living God? It is our foundation. It is our cornerstone. It is the message about Jesus. And it is is His ongoing presence by His Spirit. And so we always, always must fight to bring our focus back to the cornerstone. Back to that foundation of the apostles and prophets who witnessed to the cornerstone. It is so easy to drift from that. There are so many things at the periphery that can drift 
to the center. And they can become our cornerstone. They can become our foundation. And every one of those things will fail us and will divide us. So listen, I love our theological tradition. But if our cornerstone, if our foundation is being reformed, that will fail us and that will divide us. I like the way that we do worship. But if style drifts to the center and becomes our foundation, that will fail us and that will divide us. I like being your pastor. But if my personality drifts to the center, becomes the cornerstone, becomes the foundation, that will fail us and that will divide us. And that is true of any personality, that is true of any program, that is true of any model of doing church. We must fight always to bring ourselves back to the gospel. To the message of what Jesus has done for us and His ongoing presence with us by His Holy Spirit. That's why we focus on things like Scripture, prayer, the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and Baptism. That's why we want to come back to the simplicity of those things because they bring us always back to our cornerstone. Always back to our foundation. Why? So that we can be built up as the house of of God is the dwelling place of God's own presence. This year marks the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death. And so we need to talk about Romeo and Juliet. Not his best, but certainly his most well-known. And we think of that drama as the story of star-crossed lovers. But it is also the story of two warring families, right? It's a story of these two families deeply and violently divided. Only by the end, those families, they they come together, right? There is a scene of reconciliation around the death of their children. But if you read closely, there's a real ambiguity in that scene. And Florida State's theater school picked up on that ambiguity in their performance last year. And as the lights were going down, at the end of the play, at the end of that scene of supposed reconciliation, one of the the characters made an obscene gesture towards the other family. And that was the and then lights down. That's not in the script. Maybe that's not Shakespeare's intent. But you know what it expresses? It expresses our suspicion about peace. It expresses our cynicism about the possibility of a community living together in love. There's an invitation here. There's an invitation in the gospel to leave that cynicism, to leave that suspicion, and to step towards participation, to step Towards this glorious alternative. To step towards a family. 
that is gathered from all tribes, tongues, and nations around a death. The death of God's own Son. Who rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and makes us His dwelling place on earth. I want to invite you to that. Those of you who are a part of Center Point, I want us to let that teach us to dream what is possible here. What God might do here through this incredible identity, with this powerful message and presence. Let's pray.